Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Ever wondered who murdered John Benet Ramsey or who terrorized San Francisco as a Zodiac killer? Puzzled over the notorious Black Dahlia murder or the mysterious Long Island serial killer case? This true crime book makes you the detective, investigating some of the most infamous unsolved cases of the 20th and 21st centuries. Crime scenes, crucial evidence, witnesses, and persons of interest are clearly and concisely presented along with essential details and clues, so you can judge for yourself who could have done it. Unsolved Murders also profiles the psychology of the killer, discusses the background and life of the unfortunate victim or victims, and explores how these horrific crimes impacted the victim's family and friends. From domestic tragedies to serial killers with a love for the macabre, this book will have you returning to the cases again and again. Can you unlock the secrets of these unsolved crimes where others have failed? The book that we're featuring this evening is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered, with my special guest, journalist and author, Amber Hunt. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Amber Hunt. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining me, or joining us once again. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project. This is a book co-written with uh, Emily Thompson. Tell us a little bit about the the book itself and how it came to be. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm a journalist by trade. I work for the Cincinnati Enquirer. And sometimes you get a story assignment. And sometimes you come up with the idea yourself. This one was um, more the the former. Um, the publishing company reached out, said they had an idea, and asked if I wanted to be part of it. And uh, I thought it sounded really interesting and said, sure. And my co-author is Emily G. Thompson. She's Irish, so we've never met. She's on the other side mm-hmm. of the pond. And, um, and what impressed me the most, first off, it's been fun to get to know her through, you know, the project, because... Right. She and I are very, um, we're, we're kind of similar souls. But um, what's, what's amazing to me is that when you read the book, I don't think you'd be able to tell who wrote what. Our writing styles really mesh. Absolutely. Yes, very similar. I, I couldn't tell, certainly. Tell so, us a little yeah, bit about... What it, what yeah. me, uh, sorry. Uh, what intrigued me about it was just this idea that you would have, you know, all of these cases in one place and um and while they're they're short uh sections on each we really research the hell out of it i mean they're they're very Mm. detailed so you get a lot of information and some of the cases i knew nothing about and you know i cover crime for a living right absolutely yes there's an incredible amount of detail just compressed in 
uh, fewer pages than if you explored them fully, completely. Um, that would be a volume of work, absolutely. Tell us some of the cases as you do. What are the famous cases, infamous cases that people might know of? But tell us the overview of the cases that are covered and the stories that are covered in this book, Unsolved Murders. There's a huge array of them. Uh, one that I learned a lot about that I knew nothing about was the Velisca Axe murders. This is in the uh, early 1900s, 1912. Um, and it, it's in Iowa, which is where uh, I graduated high school. So I was a little surprised. I had never heard of it. But this was uh, right. basically a, you know, a farm family slain in their house. Um, there was a high-profile uh, Hollywood murder, uh, William Desmond Taylor. Uh, I had heard right. the name but didn't know the details of the case. And then, of course, there's a Black Dahlia, there's Zodiac. Um, one that I uh, added to the list myself was the Oakland County child killings because I, I used to, uh, I covered crime in Detroit for nearly eight years, and that case always uh, bothered and resonated with me. So um, that was one that I added. Uh, but there's a huge array, and some of them are, you know, over on the other side of the pond, too. Absolutely. It is a, a very, very interesting collection and uh, from all over the world. Let's get to one of the most famous cases, and that's the Black Dahlia case in 1947. You call it Death of a Dreamer. Uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you talked, opened this at January 15, 1947, and uh, L.A. housewife Betty Berzinger is out for a shoe repair with her three-year-old daughter, Anne. Tell us what happens on that walk to go to the shoe repair that day. Well, uh, Betty, the mom, noticed something in this uh, vacant lot because they're walking along these, like, you know, brushy, vacant areas, and, and she spots something white, and she kind of squints and looks at it and, re and realizes that it's in the, the form of a person, but she thinks it's a mannequin and one that's just been discarded because it's in two pieces, and then she suddenly realizes with horror that it is a human um, and uh, so she runs to the nearest house with a phone and calls police, and that is how um, that's how the body was discovered. Along with some of the other things that we're going to cover in terms of uniqueness, what is the uniqueness in terms of the state of the body found at that crime scene by that woman? But later, of course, she runs away. But the, what the police find? Uh, it, it, this was. Um, this made all the headlines because, in part, Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, was gorgeous, but also because the death was particularly gruesome. I mean, she was cut in half. Her face was disfigured, um, uh, as in uh, the sides of her mouth were split um, in this, like, gruesome, exaggerated smile. It was, um, it was just in incredibly violent. Was there any indication that this was possibly surgically done how precise was this or was this was a like you say a butcher job there was always some suspicion that whoever did this had some kind of medical training because of where the um uh, the bisection occurred uh so it it didn't I mean, it, it was a butcher job in that it's a human being who's in yeah. half, but they, they did think that there was um, some skill behind it.
you also include that she was, again, very unique, is drained of her blood and then, as you mentioned, but posed in a very bizarre spread eagle display and rope marks on her ankles, wrists, and throat. And uh, you say that police had determined or believed that she was hung upside down by her feet and tortured for hours before her death. Yes, it seems, and it's it's hard to fathom what on earth um, anyone uh, could do to warrant somebody treating you that way, um, but certainly not, you know, some young, beautiful wannabe actress. You know, it's, it's I, they never did find anything in her past that quite pointed to um, that kind of uh, death being warranted or, uh, yeah, so she was hung upside down, she was, she was, drained of blood their thinking is that you know she was tortured for a very long time before she was finally killed it it was uh it was just as brutal as i've seen um and it's for me one of the really interesting things about not just this case but a couple of the others too is how how much the police had to fight um rumors because, uh, you know, people complain about the media today, but back then uh, rumors made it into print a lot more than they do now. And also false confessions. It is amazing the number of people who step forward to take claim uh, when something horrific like this happens. That was absolutely shocking, the the stats. And we'll go over those stats, but it was, that was um, very, very shocking. Tell us, uh, tell our audience, how she, this Elizabeth Short, gets the nickname the Black Dahlia. What is this, and what is this reference to? Uh, there was a movie called The Blue Dahlia. Um, so it was, it, which was popular at the time. So it was kind of pulled from that, and it was changed to black because she had, you know, this raven dark hair, and she liked to wear black clothing. Um, so really, it was sort of a um, a pulled from the headlines kind of moniker. Mm-hmm. We talked about Elizabeth Short, this beautiful wannabe actress. She had done some film extra work and uh, auditioned for jobs. She was, again, actively trying to be a an actress. Uh, but tell us what the media did after this murder in, team, in terms of its importance. How did they present this case and how much of an impact did it have with the media and then with the public? Well, it's funny. I, I just did an interview yesterday where somebody was talking to me about the, um, they're asking about the, the increase in interest in true crime. You know, it's really, right. it's not an increase because there's always no. been a strange fascination with true crime. And in, sure. in this era where that came out was largely in the newspaper. So there were all of these, Stories. I mean, every single quarter turn that you could report on this case was front page news. Um, mm-hmm. So, for an example, um, a friend of uh, Elizabeth said that Elizabeth had bragged about being friends with um, an actress who was famous at the time named Ann Todd. And so UPI, which is a wire service, um, they announced that the police would question this and Todd, who was, a, a, who was British. So Todd then tells them that she'd never met her. 
But this was all, instead of like reporting it out first and it being debunked and therefore not worthy of a story, the whole thing, like every turn of it was front page news. And there were a lot of um, potential suspects. I have to say, you know, for this being an unsolved case, it does look like police uh, were pretty thorough. They interviewed more than 150 suspects. Um, But every time a name was leaked, uh, it was that person was guilty, at least for a day. And it, it was just, you know, the headlines were absolutely merciless. Mm-hmm. You talk about all kinds of suspects, one after another, being arrested and getting a guilty man's treatment for for one day. And they had uh, other suspects that maybe they were investigating for a week or so before they could clear them. And again, like you say, the papers would run with any kind of rumor that was leaked to them. Um, what was the idea that police did have, or did they have anything concrete in terms of whether it was a man, whether it was a woman, and what was their theory on terms of what had happened? They did contemplate whether it could have uh, been a, a woman, um, but there was also, I mean, it would have been difficult. While Elizabeth was petite, um, it's still physically tough to imagine another woman lifting her up, getting her upside down, and doing all of that by herself, at least. Um, So they always were leaning toward male. Um, And then, you know, it turns out we have the benefit of hindsight and it turns out that they had some pretty strong front runners, but they never could quite make the case. Um, and, and one of them was a, a doctor um, who is still largely on, you know, m- most uh, aficionados, you know, list of favorites. And why is that? You you talk about um, that person's effort, Stephen Hodell. Talk about Stephen Hodell and, and how it becomes, and his book. But as you write, his father, this doctor, was a suspect uh, at that time. Right. So, okay. some so Steve Hodell book. wrote a book um, about his dad. And uh, I found it, one of the fun things researching the book, I'm really big on um, going through newspaper archives. So I found all these stories written um, at the time. But uh, Steve Hodell, were, um, he was interviewed in 2003 by the AP. And he had said that he saw some photos in his doctor father, George Hodell's wallet, that man looked to him an awful lot like tough to tell. Um, There are some people who've done, you know, analyses of of the photos and they're not convinced, but but bolstering that is that Hodel was actually a suspect in her murder. And we know that because some of the case files were released 50 years after she was killed and he's listed in there. And in fact, um, there were uh, this, George Hodell had been tried for committing incest with his daughter. Uh, He was acquitted. Um, But when they were investigating that, when officials were investigating him, they were taping his uh, conversations. And some of them included Hodell saying things like, 
supposing I did kill her. Uh, they couldn't prove it now. Um, so those are kind of uh, suspicious comments for an innocent person to make. So Steve sure. Hodel ended up being absolutely convinced that his father was a um, was the killer, and and lending credence to Hodel is that he's he worked for the Los Angeles Police Department um, for quite a while. It's not like he was just somebody off the street with no law enforcement instincts. Black Dahlia, too, is a case of, of one of those cases that seems eerily like what could happen today with the letter created from words and letters cut from magazines and papers and sent to police or the media. And uh, what do experts today think about that letter and who might have sent that? What was the investigation at that time surrounding that? Oh, Yeah, Pretty soon after Elizabeth died, there were a, there was this letter made out of these strange like clippings, and it was sent to the examiner, um, and it said something like, uh, "I will give up uh, in Dahlia killing if I get ten years." But it, so they were basically like trying to say, hint at that he, whoever the killer was was interested in giving himself up. Um, but then he, I believe he sent a follow-up saying, uh, basically, mm. never mind. <laughs> yeah. um, there has always been some um, uh, skepticism, whether that was one of the crazy red herring, you know, type situations where somebody's trying to insert themselves into the case or whether it's real. Now, now one of them, a letter came out um, that included Elizabeth's birth certificate, her address book, some of her personal papers. Um, and then, and that one, obviously they were pretty comfortable with, uh, being legitimate. There were other theories as well. And people uh, endeavored to write books up based on those theories. You talk about British author, uh, P.U. Eatwell. What was the theory that he put forward? regarding this Black Dahlia murder. You know what? I have to remind myself which one that was because there are so many freaking... He thought that um, that the Black Dahlia murder was with his friend Connors and Mark Hansen, a local nightclub and movie theater owner. Thank you. Yeah, and he thought was, um... that... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just, I'm saying, I'm just reminding you okay. of... Um, yeah. Thank you. So yeah, there. So Eatwell was a British author, um, and his theory centered around uh, Leslie Dillon, who was a bellhop. So the bellhop um, had, in 1949, reached out to a doctor, uh, saying he wanted to talk about the book for or the murder for a book he wanted to write. And the doctor got suspicious, and the bellhop had previously worked uh, for a mortician. And so that notion that her blood had been drained um, stood out because that is something that a person working to assist a mortician would know how to do. Um, so the Eatwell book um, 
proposed that Dylan had orchestrated the murder and he had worked with a friend of his um, named Jeff Connors, who had also been interviewed but released. And then and Connors had also worked with Mark Hansen, a local nightclub and movie theater owner. And that's sort of where the, uh, the Elizabeth connection comes in. Hansen was known to seduce women like Elizabeth. So the thought was that that the three of them actually were able to work together and because there was this trio that they were able to get away with it. It is difficult, though, because each of these um, these theories, uh, right. there, there are pros and cons, and some people are fervently, you know, in the column of, of one theory or another. But for, for me, they're... There's nothing that is uh, wrapped up in a bow. I mean, for me, the the, mm. the strongest one I think is um, is the Hodel theory, um, sure. but it's a little. I mean, they didn't have enough evidence, so who knows? Right, right. And as you're right too, they put him under surveillance for three weeks in uh, 1950. You're right. So they, you would imagine that they did do some kind of thorough thorough look at this person as a suspect. Right, but then, you know, there there's probably a three-week mm-hmm. span you could have watched Ted Bundy and not been tipped off to anything, too. <laughs> so, sure, you know, certainly. It's, it's yeah. hard to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Let's talk about another case, and like you say, that when you worked in Detroit for eight years, this was a case that really impacted you, uh, the Oakland County child killings. You call it Stranger Danger, this chapter. Four terrifying kidnappings and murders, two male victims and two females. Tell us, uh, right as you do right in the book, what is the interesting or an unusual aspect about the victims and sexual assault with these four victims? What's what's interesting for the time is that they were very thoroughly cleaned, um, which uh, kind of means the killer was a bit ahead of his time because in 1976 mm-hmm. there was no DNA yet. Um, two of the victims, the two boys, uh, investigators thought they looked like they had been sexually assaulted, but the, the girls had not. Um, it was this one did resonate a lot with me Um, first off because it still haunts the area so if you've lived in Michigan for any amount of time in in the metro Detroit area you've at least heard of this case Um, but it also resonates because uh, I'm a mom now and Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a story of one of the kids in particular his his parents had even once the the murder started um his parents had said to him you know okay so what do you do you you know somebody asks you to get in your their car and the kid knows the answer is to run away but he ends up in a car and what's haunted the dad is that you know that because they had gone over this at some point surely it had to flash through the kid's mind he had to know what was going to happen because he had been warned specifically um, so that's yeah. always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There was confusion in terms of tying all these victims together because one of the victims had died of a shotgun blast to the head. 
Yeah, and that's always tricky, too. So three of them were suffocated. One was shot. Um, so at first, it didn't look as though that that fourth one, the shooting, was connected. Um, but they, they ended up being pretty comfortable that it was all, um, it was all done. It, not, it, not necessarily by the same person, because they're not convinced that it was a single perpetrator, but by the same group of people, at least. Hmm, very interesting. You talk about the first victim, uh, 12-year-old Mark Stebbins, and he was hanging out with his older brother Mike at, at a Legion Hall um, about a mile away from their home in Ferndale, Michigan, February 1976. And so they went to play pool, and after a while, Mark said he wanted to walk home, walk to watch TV, uh, went down the normal path he would take, and then he didn't make it home. What was the... Well, how was the media attention to this, and what did the well? First off, what did the mother do when he didn't come home? Tell us what unfolded there, because this is the first victim. They have no idea of these other three victims. What happens after this? Tell us as you do as you write in the book. Well, back then, you know, when when somebody called and reported disappearance, they really didn't take it seriously uh, right away, and um, you know, Mark walked this path home that he had walked home, you know, countless times before. I, I happen to know that area. I mean, Nine Mile and Woodward is, um, it's a, it's a busy area. It's not someplace uh, where I, I've walked it alone at night many times and I never would have looked over my shoulder. Um, and a child, I, I, I wouldn't have looked twice at a child walking by himself either. So, but so when he didn't come home, his mom called police. Um, but and the people who knew him got worried because this was unlike him. But media didn't really jump on it. It's you know it's at first looking like another case where the kid's likely going to turn up within you know a day or so because that's typically what does happen with kids who are are gone quickly. Um, but then four days. Later, uh, an officer spotted the body abandoned in a parking lot. Then the media attention came. So it's hard to know what kind of um, what kind if there would have been any difference in the police's ability to nail this down if media attention had been what it is today with Amber Alerts and, and such. But at the time, they just didn't take it very seriously in those early days. In those days, too, it was still a more innocent time. Mark Stebbins was found with rope burns on his wrist. He wasn't bound, but he was had been strangled or suffocated. And they they determined that it was at least a day earlier. And you talk about Ferndale Police Chief Donald Geary. Uh, he had said... Again, this is very unusual to say much, like you say, way ahead of his time. Not only was the body scrubbed, but the boy's fingernails had been scraped even. You're right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that to me, uh, I mean, my first thought is, geez, I wonder if this person knows law enforcement. But, but even at the time, the scraping of the fingernails, the best you could do at the time is um, maybe you could get enough for blood type. Uh, mm -hmm. It would, you know, DNA, the first trial with DNA evidence was 1986. 
So this is 10 years earlier than that. Uh, this killer or the killers were uh, amazingly ahead of their time. And we'll talk about that too. I have. I want to discuss something with you about that in terms of what really hit me when I noticed a couple of the things with all these victims and what they had in common. You fast forward to December 26th, day after Christmas, 1976. A motorist finds a body of Jill Robinson, who's again 12 years old, in Troy, Michigan. She had left home four days earlier after an argument with her mother. What is the state of her body as opposed to 12-year-old uh, boy Seven. just before that? Yeah, yeah this was uh, – Jill was the one who had been uh, shot with a shotgun, um, which, of course, I mean, that is immediately different, and you would you would have trouble connecting those killings straight away. But investigators did notice, I mean, first off, just two kids killed in such, um, within a year. I mean, that's, that's unnerving. So they're going right. to look at them and see what similarities they have. And there were some. Um, Jill's parents had been divorced, which was the same as Mark Stebbins. Uh, their personalities were similar. They both uh, were described as like, hanging out by themselves a lot, being loner uh, prone. Uh, and then the big kicker was that it also appeared she had been kidnapped and held for several days, the same as Mark. Um, she'd been fed in that time, which was the case with Mark. And as with Mark, her body was dumped on a day that it had snowed, uh, which was a hindrance for police gathering evidence. So, again, it seemed like whoever was doing this uh, was thinking ahead. Now, you're right. Just now, uh, just a week later, January 2nd, 1977, Christine Mihalovich left a party store about four blocks from her house in nearby Berkeley, Michigan. Uh, and then she vanished. What was the... What was her disappearance now after Mark and, and after Jill? What was, how was her disappearance treated by police? It definitely got faster attention um, at this point, especially because it was so soon after Jill's body was discovered. Um, it seemed as though the, the killer was speeding things up, which is, you know, I mean, profiling wasn't, um, wasn't widespread at this point either. Um, but there was still an understanding among the law enforcement community that when somebody gets comfortable, when a killer gets comfortable, they might start upping the pace. And that is definitely what it seemed uh, like here. So with, um, with, uh, Christine, sorry, she had just been buying a magazine. All of these, you know, we talk about it being like a simpler time. It's safer today uh, than it was back then. Um, but it's all because we, these cases, these in the Atlanta um, disappearance cases, they, they were the ones that woke a lot of parents up. Like, oh, maybe my kid shouldn't be walking alone anymore, you know. So a week after Christine vanished, um, police were certain that these were connected. 
Um, and they were particularly unnerved by this because in Christine's case, it was three o'clock in the afternoon and it was a busy street. And um, there's a quote from one of the sergeants uh, that I found in a newspaper at the time. If someone can be snatched off a busy street at 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, how can you protect anyone? So yeah, things certainly. were definitely starting to um, uh, to feel tense uh, in all of Oakland County. And I should mention, too, that these are all, uh, you know, when when you're talking about Metro Detroit, it's hard to know about the the you know, which areas are affluent and, and which are um, struggling more. Uh, Oakland mm-hmm. County is, is pretty affluent. Berkeley is yeah. high, you know, upper middle class for the most part. Right. Um, Ferndale, that area was maybe a, a, a little uh, less affluent, but not much. So mm-hmm. all of this was really shocking for that place. Again, disturbing and being held in captivity. 19 days after Christine's disappearance, a mail carrier, Jerry Wozni, discovers her body in a ditch in Franklin, Michigan, uh, not in Oakland County. Uh, no, that that is Oakland County, yeah. Oh, pardon but me, Franklin, Franklin is, yeah. It's a bit now, of a drive, and it, it it also speaks to this. I mean, where are these kids being held? How could this be going unnoticed? The whole county is on high alert. The, the whole region is. Um, so how can somebody manage to uh, pick a human being up off the street, hold them captive, and nobody notices? But this mail carrier ends up, um, he saw the hand first, and um and then he saw the rest of the body. And same with the other two, Christine had um, been dropped during a snow, a snowfall. And, um, and it looked to him as though whoever dropped her had like sort of done this half-assed attempt to cover her with snow. Yeah. We talk about, we, you mentioned the conversation that Mr. King had with his son, 11-year-old son, Tim, after Christine was found, and of course this case that captivated everyone's imagination and probably always, obviously all, all these parents as well. So this is less than two months later. Mr. King has had this conversation with Tim warning him, if you ever have anybody come up to you, just run, scream, and run. This is March 16, 1977, less than two months later. What happens with Tim King? Well, he skateboards to a uh, a local store, a drugstore, to pick up some candy. And it's literally three blocks from his house. And um, he he got to the store. The clerk said that he bought his candy, and he left, and he never got home. So um, it, it that one, you know, again, when his body was found, it was totally cleaned. Um and then the the this extra like disturbing detail that always stayed with me was that uh, his body was tossed like it was nothing, and then his skateboard was just tossed alongside it. It's just mm-hmm. like you know this this kid was picked up, used for whatever he was going to be used for, and then just tossed like trash. Let's talk about another more horrifying aspect of this. His favorite meal was 
fried chicken, in particular KFC. And so after he was missing, there was some outreach through the media, talked about, if you come home, we got your KFC. Now, this is, he's missing. And of course, the police know that they have this psychopath on the loose child killer. Everyone's alerted. Tell us about when he's found, and then with this fried chicken in mind, what they find in terms of, from the autopsy, regarding chicken. Well, he was missing for a week. Uh, His body was then found. So like the other ones, though, he clearly hadn't been killed immediately. He'd been kept alive um, for most of the time he'd been missing. And in fact, um, police believed that when they found the body, Tim had been suffocated within the hour. And when they did the autopsy, uh, they found that Tim had eaten just before he was killed fried chicken. Wow. Yeah, like it was a, a, a last meal offered or something. What I want to ask you was, and I alluded to this before, was that when we said that this killer was way ahead in, in potential DNA intelligence, well, that couldn't be, that he couldn't have that foresight to know of a DNA innovation years and years later. However, it it also was a time of developing profiles on killers, and there weren't too many child killers in which to get examples from. What I thought was particularly interesting was the detail that you wrote about how they were washed and then carefully dressed. The fingernails were scraped. But this fried chicken thing that maybe the killer saw the, the plea by the parents or and or the, the the kid said this is my favorite meal it seems eerily coincidental that he would pay this much attention and i just think that it's he's ahead in terms of the uh insane psychopathic killer that pays attention to the details of the kids like he loves them and cherishes them and treats them good and then of course has to kill them right right yeah, but it it paints a, an incredibly disturbing picture. It's one thing when you are thinking about, I mean, none of it is, is pleasant, but it's one thing when you're thinking about somebody who is evil and he is out to hurt. It is another thing when you are thinking of the culprit is thinking of himself as benevolent and that yeah. maybe, you know, he's he's doing something kind for these children. Um, that's sure. a special kind of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's now just you the write, bone-chilling stuff. Absolutely, it really is. Um, now, you write that there's enough witnesses come forward so that a sketch artist at the time creates a sketch. Uh, white man, dark hair, prominent uh, nose, thick lips, uh, mutton-chop sideburns. And then even a psychological profile was created at that time. Uh what is the result of all of that sketches and witness eyewitness reports? Well, I mean, they, so from the psychological profile, they, what they told people they were looking for is somebody 20 to 35 years old, uh, somebody who's well-educated white collar job. um, And obviously like must either live alone or live with enough freedom that he can pull this off because this is pretty time intensive. 
Um, so the police chief at the time urged people in the medical and legal professions to come forward um, because they, he thought that maybe the killer might be seeing a psychiatrist. And then they right. also um, started to try to appeal to people who might know something but were covering for this person, you know, a mom or mm. a buddy or something like that. Um, so one of the things that happened, though, was that family members of the victims ended up being uh, left out of the loop. So they wanted information yeah. from investigators, and investigators were so concerned about uh, trying to keep this close to the vest. I mean, they, they did, of course, legitimately want to solve these murders, but it was um, – it was upsetting to the family that they, they were not given enough information. And so right. they, um, they ended up kind of at odds with the cops in the case, which is pretty, I mean, it, it's pretty unusual for that time period. Mm-hmm. So, you talk and about- actually the family, I'm not sure if this is, something that you were wanting wanting to get into but that the family for me one of the the more interesting parts of the case in terms of legal aspects that have developed is that the family has had to fight for uh investigative material to be released so these murders were in 76 and 77 and it was just 2012 it was actually right after i left the detroit free press when i was working there um they they finally released about 6,000 pages. And so, you know, typically a police department doesn't have to release information that, um, that is part of an ongoing investigation. But if you haven't solved it in decades, maybe it's time you release it so somebody else can have a chance at looking at it mm-hmm. before the killer or killers uh, have died, make some progress on it. But they really had to fight for that. Mm-hmm. Now, from those 6,000 pages of case documents, um, there is suspect speculation. Um, you talk about a mysterious man named John, maybe it was a priest or someone posing as a police officer, but you say few actual names were publicly tied to the case, except there was a name, David Norberg, an auto worker, who drove a car similar to the one that was described near Tim's uh, King's abduction. Tell us about right. why he was a suspect. He stood out because he did have a violent past. So he had been suspected of killing two little girls in the late 1970s. So, you know, obviously he wasn't, uh, he didn't jump out in 76 because he, he wasn't on anybody's radar yet, but pretty soon he right. was, and he wasn't convicted. And then he died in a car crash um, soon after these. So it was 1981. And his wife found in his belongings this, um, this silver cross, and it was inscribed with the name Christine. And it was even spelled the yeah. same way, Christine with a K. So she yeah. remembered, the wife remembered, that, um, that Christine had been the name of the Oakland County Child Killer's third victim, so she right. reached out to Christine's aunt, and the aunt said, oh, that's identical to uh, an, 
a cross that Christine had worn soon before her death. So police, yeah. yeah, so they had long been looking at her, but then they finally did exhume his, or him, I'm sorry, but they finally did exhume his body in 99. Um, because as careful as this killer was, they did manage to pull a little DNA um, and they stored it, but Norberg's DNA did not match what they had retrieved from one of the, the bodies. Of course, it could be that that was, you know, DNA from something else entirely. You never entirely know uh, how this stuff plays out, but they had nothing conclusive to tie him to it as suspicious as he seemed. Now, there's a, another suspect was convicted pedophile, Christopher Bush, and he was just on a short list of suspects. Why is he a suspect, and what what, what happened at looking at him as a suspect? Well, the pedophile part helped. Um, I mean, they, they were definitely, investigators were absolutely zeroing in on people who they knew to have um, those kinds of proclivities. Uh, but he also drove a car that looked like the one um, spotted, I believe, in Tim's uh, abduction. So um, investigators, so he ended up um, being questioned, and he straight up like acknowledged um, that he's a pedophile. Uh, so I guess that's useful for investigators. Um, mm-hmm. He... This It gets a little complicated because there are politics involved, but basically investigators wanted to keep him in jail. They they liked him for this, and they wanted to sure. learn more from him. Um, but the head prosecutor, uh, who's still a big player in Oakland County today, um, released him as part of a plea deal. And then in 78, um, he uh, killed himself. Now, what about the allegation or mention that you have about a drawing of a screaming boy that resembled Mark Stebbins reportedly pinned to the wall when they found right Bush. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those, you know, the, the cross with Norberg, um, it, it seems like, a, a an obvious, like, Oh, okay. So he must have done it. But then the screaming mm-hmm. drawing, um, is, it's the piece that, people point to a lot for um, Christopher Bush. So this drawing was pinned to the wall and it was of a screaming child, a young boy, and people who saw it felt like it resembled the first victim, Mark. Incredible. Now, yet another suspect that you write about is this James Gunnels, a 56-year-old person. And you say he's connected to Kristen's murder through DNA. Uh, Yes. Tell us. So this tell is us, the they... strongest connection that we've got, yeah. And that wasn't until um, 2012 that investigators said they let people know that a strand of hair had been found on Christine. And then they tested it against this um, uh, 56-year-old man, James Gunnels, and found they, they had to use mitochondrial DNA. Um, it's a little less precise, but it's... Uh, awfully good. Um, so they found that it was a, a match for Gunnels, or at least they couldn't exclude him based on it. Um, 
the interesting part with him is he would have only been 16. Uh, and he had been one of uh, Christopher Bush's victims. Yeah. So that does make you wonder if he had been victimized and maybe one of his hairs landed on Christine through some kind of transfer or if he had been recruited to, you know, assault uh, other people who were picked up by somebody like Bush. Mm -hmm. You talk about the test producing another suspect, Arch Sloan. Tell us about Arch Sloan and why he's a suspect. He's another one who's serving a life sentence um, for the rape of a 10-year-old boy, so known pedophile, um, and a hair found in his car matched hair at both Mark and Tim's crime scenes. So um, now the hair wasn't Sloan, uh, but there's a hair in his car and uh, separate hairs on these two boys, and they all match. So investigators are thinking, okay, well, um, maybe it belongs to an acquaintance of Sloan's. And this is this all feeds into um, one of the most uh, prevalent theories uh, that I heard while working in Detroit, which was that it was some kind of pedophile ring, um, so mm-hmm. that there there might have been more people involved, and that certainly you know would explain how it could how somebody could be kept in captivity for an amount of time and nobody report it. Now, this story getting stranger, now you talk about Mark Stebbins' family through this whole thing is trying to fight for information from the police to, to release the files, but they also file a wrongful death suit in 2007 against a man named Theodore Lamborghini a man also in prison for life on assault convictions. Uh, why did the Stebbins do this? And, and, and as a result of their efforts, what happens? They did this not so much because they thought for sure they would get a conviction. They did it because they, um, they wanted more information. And when you file a lawsuit, there's a thing called discovery. And sometimes it's a, a clever backdoor way to get more information um, released from an investigation than you might otherwise get. Uh, so um, Stebbins' lawyer um, was one of the people who didn't think that any one single person did this. Um, he, he thought that um, one What's the word I'm looking for? He thought that one angle that should be pursued was that Lamborghini refused to take a polygraph, even though he was offered um, a plea deal. So even when they told him, hey, you'll you'll serve much less time if you do this, he said no. And so the lawyer's like, well, if you're not the Oakland County child killer, wouldn't you say so? Wouldn't you try to prove that? The, the fact that he refused um, was very suspicious to him. But the suit ended up being dismissed um, in 2008, the year after it was filed, uh, because 
um, because they didn't they didn't feel there was enough evidence. But the the judge did leave room for it to be refiled if they did find more evidence that pointed directly at Lamborghini. You, uh, what was the end result in terms of any more suspects that, that they seriously investigated after that? Yeah, they. I don't think that they have. They're not short on suspects, um, but and and they do have some DNA evidence, but unfortunately, it's it's really limited. They have basically a few strands of hair, and um, there is something a little strange to me, just personally, as you know, a, a reporter who's done some cold case investigating it's a little strange to me that they still hold on to the evidence so tightly because come on it's not like it's not like anybody can screw up the investigation at this point you know i mean this case happened before i was born um so i think though i my gut is that if if more were released, we'd have a better sense at least of why some of these people were not arrested when it looked pretty strong, you know, or or I'd love to know how much more they did on, say, uh, Gunnels and Sloan, um, the ones where they did have DNA ties. You really can't tell how far they went because you don't have the files. Mm-hmm. You write that in 2012, an identified, unidentified investigator named Bob claimed there were 11 to 16 victims and killings connected to satanic rituals. And, of course, those claims were dismissed due to lack of evidence. But I always find it odd that there is never, ever, and according to the FBI, there's pretty strict criteria what a satanic ritual is classified as. But I find it odd that there's never any connection to satanic rituals. Ever. Um, what do you think about what this investigator said about satanic rituals? Any credibility? I am always suspicious of somebody who's not willing to put their full name out there. Um, that's just okay. the uh, cynical journalist in me. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean uh, the, the 11 to 16 victims, I, I buy that pretty quickly. Um, I don't know about satanic rituals. To me, it feels like a, um, I mean, we haven't seen any evidence of that, but what we have seen is is clear evidence of some kind of um, maybe pedophilia, possibly ring. Uh, that's, right. that's where my suspicion leans. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that... Uh, but when you have a case, so when you have a case that happened and the political players uh, remain in positions of power, it can get really frustrating because those people have decided they either know what happened or they know what they uh, can't find out. Uh, so they're not going to release this information. Basically, what I would love to see is all of this stuff come to light but it's probably not going to happen until after um, after the then prosecutor retires right. from county politics altogether. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating case that certainly has no answers, but 
uh, again, like not not short on suspects. No, and that that was one of the interesting things about researching all of these cases. They all seem to have um, an interesting array of suspects. Some were clearly people raising their hand when they had nothing to do with it and were just mentally unstable enough to want that kind of attention. But a lot of them are really strong possible suspects and you can see how frustrating it must be for the family um, for all of these families to be like, you know, how, how can we know this much, but not be able to get any one of these people in court? How can we not reach that finish line? You know? Absolutely. We have uh, time to talk about one more case in this uh, unsolved murders. Can we talk about the Tylenol murders of 1982? Because this is, a, again, a fascinating case that you've covered. Uh, Mary Kellerman, September 82 in Chicago, is under the weather and takes a couple extra strength Tylenol from her parents' bathroom. Tell us about this case and uh, why you decided to cover this in particular and some of the more fascinating aspects of this that we might not have known about. Yeah, I thought this one was especially interesting because when we think of unsolved murders, we don't, we don't automatically think of um, something like this. So what, what happened mm-hmm. was you had it, it, the, the opening of the chapter is so it, you could see it cinematically because uh, in one part of town, you've got Mary um, who goes and pops a couple of Tylenol and then her dad hears this thump. And he runs in and he finds her and, you know, she's 12 years old and she's pronounced dead by 10 a.m. And then across town, somebody completely unrelated, uh, 27 years old, he's a postal worker. He wakes up and he calls in sick to work because he's not feeling great. He picks up his kids from preschool. He goes to the pharmacy um, to get some medicine. And then he decided uh, he should take some Tylenol and a nap. And then within minutes, he drops in the kitchen. So this is happening across town. Um, This is a Chicago area. Um, All of these, these people just suddenly fall ill and they are, they're mostly dead within minutes. It's, it's frightening. Um, And then they, the investigators pretty like impressively, Quickly, I mean, it's especially considering the time um, piece together that all, you know, the connection between them is that they had taken Tylenol and then they uh, they start to realize that somebody's tampered with them. And this is one of those cases that for me, I had heard of, but it sounded more like urban legend um, than I, I didn't really fully grasp how many victims there were and exactly what had happened. Um, But this is the case that caused, you know, standards to change. And now we have uh, seals on top of our our medicine that we buy at the the stores. It's because somebody had gone in and put in um, these tainted pills into these bottles and then slipped them right back on the shelves and uh, straight up killed people. What you write is so movie-esque, though, in the terms of the facts, is that the second victim, Adam, um, takes the Tylenols, and then 
his brother Stanley, uh, after they yeah. rush him to the emerge, the, he takes the painkiller for the stress, and his wife has a headache, so they both take him. And now, luckily, the 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 doctor that was on duty, this Dr. Kim, who had treated, uh, had just seen Stanley in fine shape, now gets this call that other people from Adam's family are coming in. So he realizes quickly, like you say, they miraculously figured this out quickly, especially for the time. And that was partly just timing, is that he had met Stanley and then figured, well, geez, this must be much more than just a heart attack here. Right. I mean, the the nobody had... Seen, I mean, aside from the family members, obviously, nobody knew what condition Mary, uh, the 12-year-old, had been before she took her Tylenol. Uh, same thing with Adam. But a doctor had just chatted with Stanley, telling him about his, uh, his brother's situation, and he saw somebody healthy. And so when he comes in and his wife comes in, um, it's... It, it triggered something uh, quickly in him. So that probably kept more people from being killed. Well, you also write about two suburban firefighters who had been monitoring chatter on their fire radios, radios that they kept at home and they were comparing notes and they were the persons, uh, people that contacted Dr. Kim and realized that that was the, shared commonality between all these people was the inconspicuous Tylenol. Exactly. Yeah. These two, and you know, they, they weren't doctors, but they had this hunch. They, um, you know, when somebody collapses, uh, firefighters are, they're paying attention to the chatter on the radios and, um, and they knew that the, uh, the brother and his wife, um, had both taken Tylenol. So they they placed a phone call and said, you know, stab in the dark here, but could it be the Tylenol? So that mm-hmm. gave that doctor the, you know, it, it's one thing to know that, oh, goodness, these seem to be related. It's another thing to be given sort of a shortcut into figuring out, okay, this is what I need to test to see if this is the culprit. And that's what he was able to do. So inside mm-hmm. of those... Um, bottles like basically they had um they had capsules with those little pellets i'm not sure what you call them but the little tiny pellets and uh the capsules had been emptied and refilled with cyanide um so between five and seven micrograms is fatal and these capsules had up to 65 milligrams so they were or micrograms so they were in several thousand times more than a fatal dose. And so that's why the people who took them, because you can have cyanide poison that lasts for months and they check it in your hair and all that stuff, but the um, floored them in minutes and there was no recourse. Mm -hmm. You write of the incredible panic in Chicago. And what I found interesting in your book is that you write about national reports of other victims falling ill from various poisons like rat poison and hydrochloric acid. So it was uh, investigation found opportunistic copycats. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And in fact, I think one of the reasons I, I 
had heard of this story. It was kind of niggling in the back of my mind. Um, I believe there's a forensic file where they figured out um, that that one of the copycats uh, had tried to kill her husband. <laughs> you know, so it yeah, was yeah. pretty. Um, it, it became a uh, an intriguing potentiality for people who were upset with others in their lives because it it was so random and uh you know all you had to do was tamper one of those pills and say well i bought it this way of course Mm -hmm. there are some more um scientific tells that people maybe weren't thinking of like you know they knew the um they knew the the way that the originals had been pulled apart and put back together and all that. But yeah, there were, there were not just copycats, um, but then also this, this panic that just swept the area and not just Chicago. I mean, it swept the country. Yeah. Now we talk about uh, suspects in this case and an early suspect was somebody named Roger Arnold who had worked alongside one of the, victims in a food warehouse Uh, he's 48 years old and he was arrested after a tip-off that he had cyanide in his house and he was interrogated for three days what happened in terms of that you know that look for cyanide in his home and what about the interrogation for three days and uh, tell us about the unofficial i guess as you as you write the eighth victim because there were seven victims of the tylenol murderer the eighth victim as a result of Roger Arnold and his actions. Yeah, this was, um, I always talk about crime as, you know, being this never ending uh, disaster, you know, the ripple effects Mm -hmm. never end. And this is very clearly indicative of that. So the situation was that uh, we don't know who, which coworker um, uh, reported Arnold as having cyanide in his home. Uh, but what we do know is that Arnold was um, heavily interrogated for three days. Um, and then his, it, it was sort of, um, I think the, the most recent scenario I can relate it to is Richard Jewell from the 96 uh, right. Olympic bombing where, you know, the name splashed all over the place. He's, he's looking guilty because that's how it's presented and then three days later, police say, you know, we, we can't find a link. So he's released, but he feels like his whole life is ruined. And, you know, it kind of probably is. So he started to believe that a coworker named John, uh, I'm not sure if it's Stanisha or Stanisha, but John um, was the one who tipped police off. He was this uh, 46-year-old computer consultant. And he had kids. He was a father of three. So he he decides that John is the one who ruined his life, so he shoots him and kills him, and then learns after that that police say, no, he wasn't our informant. And so Arnold said years later, uh, I killed a man, a perfectly innocent person. So he's considered the the unofficial eighth victim of of this wave of killings. You talk about the most likely break in the case was two weeks after, and the manufacturer of 
the product, Johnson & Johnson received a letter promising to stop the killings for $1 million. You talk about that letter given was given to the FBI and was traced. Who was it traced to and what happens as a result of this turn in the investigation? His name was uh, James W. Lewis. There are a lot of James Lewises in New York City, so made a point to sure. include the W. Um, at first it was dismissed, you know, that he was being opportunistic. Um, but when you talk to people who know this case inside and out, he's still on the top of their suspect list. Um, but that's partly because nobody else has, has, you know, arisen as the more likely suspect. So, mm-hmm. but there are, there are some things that are um, interesting about him. So he and his wife had pill-making machines. They had imported some from India. When they first moved to Chicago, they had lived under false names. That's not usually what people do, so why would you do that? That's a little suspicious. Um, He also had some violence in his past. Uh, He had been charged with uh, beating and dismembering a man. Um, The charges were dismissed, but it uh, still is something that investigators look at when they're trying to figure out somebody's character. Um, And then they've never found anything concrete that connected him. I mean, he was uh, convicted of trying to extort, so he's the only one who's been charged in connection at all with this crime. Um, But They've never found anything definitive connecting him to the actual poisonings. Uh, But I did find that as recently as 2009, federal investigators had searched his home. Nothing was found. But they're still, Mm -hmm. you know, as recently as a decade ago, they were still trying to figure out if if they could nail him for it. Yeah. You write an an interesting stat. Interesting that... Oh, I'm sorry, but the next year no, go he ahead. actually wrote a novel called Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma, and it's about people who were unknowingly poisoned. Incredible. You write about the FDI, FDA with reports that more than 270 different incidents of copycat tampering afterwards. Yeah, it was an insane... Um, wave of opportunism and geez if you ever want to feel terrible about your fellow man just think of that Mm -hmm. absolutely um we didn't talk about all the stories that are in this book itself but in when we talked about the basilia of basilica axe murders uh also you, you in this book we didn't get to william desmond taylor uh, Hollywood Who Done It, The Bodies in the Barn, uh, The Hinter Kafik Murders of 1922, The Impossible Murder, very, very interesting, The William Wallace, Wallace Case of 1931, uh, The Deep Waters, which is the shark arm case in 1935, The Cleveland Torso Killer Scandal in Shangri-La, uh, you have The Zodiac Killer, which is covered, uh, The Murder of Marilyn Shepard, did Sam Shepard do it, um, and who put Bella in the witch elm, the skeleton in the wood? 
you have uh, we just talked about, and the murder of John Benet Ramsey is also included in this book too, and the Lake Bodum murders of 1960, and the story about the Long Island serial killer, which you call the bodies in the marshland. Also, you cover Staircase of Death, the murder of Kathleen Peterson from 2001, the murder of Jill Dando, and the drive-by shootings of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this book. Uh, for those that might want to look at other work, do you have a website, Facebook page? How might they take a look at that? I do. I'm at reporteramber.com. Um, Twitter is the same, reporteramber. And I think on Facebook, I'm author Amber Hunt. You can find me there. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Amber. Uh, Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. It's been a fascinating interview. Thank you very much. You have a great evening. You too. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good night. Good night.